The Way Out Podcast, episode 242. I'm a neurosurgeon, uh, so I muck around in the brain and the spine and spinal cord, treat a lot of people with neurological problems, and I come across a lot of patients with uh, addiction to uh, medications and, and uh, drugs, etc. Understanding that once someone begins uh, taking certain drugs that are stimulants, etc., that they're going to be hooked. It's a scientific fact. It's something that cannot be changed. That's just how our bodies are created. If you don't have it for a certain period of time, you don't feel very good. That's an addiction. You have an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, okay? It's a very important part of the brain when you learn about addiction. What happens is, is that this area of the brain loves dopamine. Dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter and hormone. Uh, in addiction. It also is important in love and other things. And there's so many different receptors, like D1 receptors, D2 receptors, in the, this region of the uh, nucleus accumbens that just wants to eat up that hormone. And it takes it on and it causes all sorts of changes in the nucleus accumbens that make you feel the way you feel when you take medications or alcohol, etc. And what happens is over time, if you keep on taking something in higher and higher doses chronically, there's actually a genetic change that occurs. And so it's permanently embedded in your genetic makeup now to overexpress certain genes and hormones because your body is assuming that this is probably what I need. So your body's gonna adjust by making that happen chronically because you've been taking it for so long. Other areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Okay, they control your memory. So for example, you may remember being at a party, drinking a lot of alcohol and whatever, meeting a lot of girls, this or that. Yeah, you just feel great. And so you associate that particular time, mm. drinking or whatever drugs, with a great moment in your life. And so your brain knows that. So the next time you do it, you're like, you have that memory. So there's all so, these connections and you feel you want that again and again. There have been twin studies that have been done, actually. And if you look at twin studies, it's extremely rare. I, I would say zero that one twin gets an addiction problem and the other doesn't. I, I think it's zero. Really? Percent. Yeah. So what does that say? I mean, that's how you study genetics. Right. Right? You take twins and you that's study right. them. Uh, right. And so there's a extremely high genetic tendencies with sobriety and with stopping uh, the offending agents uh, so that your body can then be like yeah huh okay so i guess maybe this is my normal now this not what it was before it's it's this so i need to change we need to start changing all my cells changing the genetics of the cells now back to what we are now this is the status quo so then the body will adjust itself and that's amazing how our bodies can do that and the hard part is <clears throat> that whole sobriety process. So the brain is like plastic. You can mold it. You can change it depending on what you're doing to your, to your body and brain. If you go into sobriety quick enough, you're not going to have atrophy of your brain, which is the brain losing volume. You're not going to have, you know, injury to the, you know, uh, memory areas of the brain, which can happen with alcohol. The body will heal over time. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism 
and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, we've got a fascinating and indeed incredibly illuminating interview on the science of addiction with neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalustian. Dr. Kalustian and I discuss the effects addictive substances have on our brain's reward and memory centers, our physical wellness, and yes, even on our very genetic makeup which dovetails on what we already know about genetic predisposition to addiction. The known impact of addictive substances on our brain and body is quite profound. From the negative effect on our brain cells in response to these substances and behaviors, to the at times severe impact on our physical bodies, equally, or perhaps even more profound, is the remarkably adaptive and healing properties of our brain cells and bodies to long-term abstinence and healthy behaviors that in many cases can completely reverse the damage initially caused by addictive substances or behaviors. We go on to explore the science behind how some of us are genetically predisposed to addictive substances and behaviors and how these substances and behaviors can actually change our very genetic makeup. Without question, the best news Dr. Kalustian brings us through the science of addiction and recovery is that the plasticity of our brain and the healing properties of our bodies means that if we embrace sobriety and work toward wellness of our minds, bodies, and spirits, true recovery, in every sense of that word, is not only possible, it is a scientific certainty. So listen up. Dr. Paul Kalustian, thank you so much for taking time to join us here 
on the Way Out podcast. I'm extremely excited to have you on to talk about a number of really important subjects as it relates to alcoholism and addiction. Share on the science behind addictive behaviors, especially as it relates to the reward system in our brains. And then also share a little bit about the long-term effects. Long-term substance use can have on our brains and how they function before we do that. Sure. Take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. Really, it's an honor of of mine to be here and I really love your show and I think you're doing some good work for a lot of people. So I I appreciate you having me on. And uh, I'm a I'm a neurosurgeon, uh, so I muck around in the brain and the spine and spinal cord and, um, and um, treat a lot of people with neurological problems. And I come across a lot of patients with uh, uh, addiction, uh, and addiction is just a very general term. It, it refers to so many different things in general, uh, but certainly <clears throat> addiction to uh, medications and, and uh, drugs, etc., but yeah, I'm, uh, I work out in really uh, Los Angeles, Riverside, Pasadena, all over Southern California. I occasionally go to other states and, and evaluate patients there as well. And I'm pretty active in teaching and, and writing and publishing. I've written numerous books and uh, those can all be found online. Um, but I'm happy to really have a nice discussion here and hopefully provide some insight uh, from a neurological basis uh, on how addiction forms and, you know, what some interesting thoughts are on, on, on that particular area of uh, pathology. So many of our listeners are either contemplating recovery or new in recovery. And I think a really common question we ask ourselves is, what have I done to myself? What yeah really have I done to my brain? Am I going to be miswired forever now based on my own mucking around that I did in my brain? Now, the mucking around, Paul, that I did in my brain, I don't (laughs) think falls under the same category (laughs) as the mucking around that you do in brains. I think it's different. So I'm probably not going to tell people that I'm a neurosurgeon (laughs) based on that. However, we do wonder that. Yeah. So maybe share a little bit about what the science tells us. Yeah. On what substances can do. And there's a lot of them, right? Uh, in terms of alcohol and, but they're categorized broadly, right? In terms of central nervous depressants and stimulants. So maybe we can have a discussion about that and what long-term stimulant use might do versus long-term central nervous depressant use might do. Sure. And it's really not even medications. I mean, people have gambling problems. People have, uh, you know, other issues, sex addiction, love addiction, all all these variety of things. But yeah, certainly medications though are very, very potent uh, as you know. I mean, and it's a, trillion dollar market for people that are doing it illicitly because they're understanding that once someone 
begins uh, taking certain drugs that are stimulants, et cetera, that they're going to be hooked. It's a scientific fact. It's something that cannot be changed. That's just how our bodies are created. And, and hopefully we'll go into the details in terms of how uh, on a hormonal basis, addiction occurs. So let's do that first. Let's, yeah. let's do that first before we talk about the long-term effects of some of yeah. these substances. Yeah. Let's so talk about the science of addiction and how our chemistry and brains get hooked on these different substances because you know what? There's people that will tell you that alcohol is not addictive. There's people that will tell you that marijuana is not addictive. There's people that will tell you that certain drugs are not addictive. And I think the science tells us otherwise. Yeah. And you know, uh, Charles, one way that I've always um, studied this and, and kind of understood is that if there's anything in life where you keep needing it or and or if you don't have it for a certain period of time, you don't feel very good. Mm-hmm. That's an addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't care what people say about oh, alcohol cannot be addictive or smoking can't be addictive. The fact of the matter is, is that when you look at people that take these medications or drugs for certain periods of time and they cannot get off of them, they need them and they feel terrible when they're not on them. That's an addiction. And that is so common. When now, you become dependent, right? And they, then you experience symptoms of withdrawal. That's right. an addiction, no matter how, how you slice it, right? Yeah, there's, that's just because that's not a normal response. The body should not feel that terrible. You shouldn't feel those super highs and those super lows. That's not a normal human response. That's an, a response to some external influence on our brain and our bodies and our blood vessels, causing us to feel that way. And really what it comes down to is that you have an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, okay? It's a very important part of the brain when you learn about addiction. And the very, very smart people have studied this particular area of the brain in detail. Many have spent their whole lives looking at it. And what happens is is that this area of the brain loves dopamine. Dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter and hormone uh, in addiction. It also was important in love and other things, but Mm. addiction, it's so important. It's kind of like that, that medication that makes you feel so good after getting a certain medication in your body or alcohol or whatever in your body. It's kind of, it gives you that high. Uh, And, and there's so many different receptors like D1 receptors, D2 receptors in this region of the uh, nucleus accumbens that just wants to eat up that hormone and it takes it on and it causes all sorts of changes in the nucleus accumbens that make you feel the way you feel when you take medications or alcohol, et cetera. So that's a very critical hormone. Uh, And what happens is over time, if you keep on taking something in higher and higher doses chronically, there's actually a genetic change that occurs. And there are about five or six different genes that, that have been identified uh, that are uh, manipulated when you take a certain drug or medication chronically. So it's kind of permanently embedded in your genetic makeup now to overexpress certain genes and hormones because mm. uh, your body is assuming that this is probably what I need. So your body's going to adjust by making that happen chronically because you've been taking it for so long. 
So your body becomes dependent on this substance to provide that dopamine kick in order to feel okay, in order to feel good. And get this, the more you take a certain substance, the the better you actually feel. Mm -hmm. They've actually studied that. It's called incentive salience. And isn't that crazy that if you keep on taking something, your body actually makes you feel even better and better. So you just want it more and more. So this part of your brain, that's our reward system. Is that correct? Yes. And we start feeding this reward system with substances that make those dopamine receptors go crazy. Is it, doctor, that our brain stops making as much of it naturally and then it depends on an external source? Or is it that the brain thinks it needs more because that's what it's been getting? I think it's more of the latter. The brain thinks it needs more, uh, but certainly the body still produces uh, a certain amount, though probably less so because um, there's there's going to be a, a, a significant amount of hormones already in the bloodstream. So right. it's going to kind of negatively feedback on the areas of the brain that make that. Right. So maybe other areas in the brain aren't making it as much, which could explain too why when we stop abruptly that there's this, your brain is thinking it needs a lot. Yeah. And then you stop and give it zero. Right. Right. And, and to top things off, there's other areas of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Okay. They control your memory. So for example, you may remember being at a party, drinking a lot of alcohol and whatever, meeting a lot of girls, this or that, yeah, you just feel great. And so you associate that particular time mm. drinking or whatever drugs with a great moment in your life. And so your brain knows that. So the next time you do it, you're like, you have that memory. So there's so, all these connections and you feel you want that again and again and again. It's this really positive experience that it immediately gets associated with. So not only does your reward system say, yes, this was amazing. This was great. That felt good. But also I had this really amazing experience with it. So that now is forever connected, right? Which makes a lot of sense to me because the first time I ever drank, I felt as though it unlocked things inside of me that I couldn't access any other way. I, for the first time in my life, didn't feel afraid, insecure, Mm. anxious. I could flirt with the girls. I could stick up to the guys. I was funny. I was the life of the party. I was everything I wanted to be. And I felt really great too, right? Mm. Inside, I was this, this euphoric experience that I, that was really nothing I had experienced. And those two things seared themselves into my brain forever. I almost died that night. Oh, wow. Because I drank so much, but because it was a black, I don't remember it. And so I remember it as a really positive experience, right? And that really set me up 
for a lifetime of a uh, a lifetime of use of alcohol until the age of 36 uh, what i uh, was able to achieve begin a journey of long term recovery that continues yeah. to this day but even in sobriety 6 years in i look back on that experience mm-hmm. and it's it still registers as a magical experience Hmm. Isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, the way you make it sound, it's like, why wouldn't anyone want to drink? You know, you had, you felt comfortable. You didn't feel afraid anymore, you know, but you know, obviously if you look back, you regret that. So that's what I think we need to tell people in your audience is that it may feel great. And you still may think that that was a great time that day. And you may have learned something from it, but um, but was it worth it? And so, you know, obviously not in terms of health consequences. Now, were there alternative things you could have done at that time? That's, I think, something that we all could explore, you know, to avoid kind of doing dangerous things, but perhaps doing healthier things that could produce the same effects. And a lot of times we're not exposed to that. No one tells each other what we can do. Like you just, we were talking earlier about you playing tennis. That's right. You could have played tennis. No one introduced you to it at the time. You know, maybe that could have been your savior, you know, as opposed to alcohol or whatever other medication. You know, so and indeed in sobriety, yes, there's things that I do that give me incredible satisfaction that are also very healthy for me. I don't regret anything because recovery has given me the ability to really be at peace with everything in my past, which is great. So I don't regret that night. I wouldn't be here if that night didn't happen. But that all said, I'm also well aware that that kind of activity and that kind of behavior Mm -hmm. led to a a very destructive pattern in my life. And I was very fortunate to be able to stop that pattern of behavior. But boy, it went on for 20 years. Wow. I commend you. That's hard work. And uh, I think anyone could do that with hard work. And uh, you know, I think uh, really, you know, number one, you know, th- there's a genetic basis. And I know you were talking about that with your, with you um, and your family, you know, it, there have been twin studies that have been done, actually. And if you look at twin studies, it's extremely rare, I, I would say zero, that one twin gets an addiction problem and the other doesn't. I, I think it's zero. Really? Percent. Yeah. So what does that say? I mean, that's how you study genetics. Right. Right? You take twins and you that's study right. them. Uh, right. And so there's a extremely high genetic tendency. And it's all over my family, Dr. Kalustian. It's all over my family. So it's no wonder that. But you also said that we can indeed, after a period of use, start to change our own genetics around this. Of course. You you can, of course, change and prevent things. Just because you have a genetic predisposition for something that's, I would say, less than half of it. You have about 60% or more uh, chance and ability to change things. Mm. And that's great. And, mm. and so not that- only because you were saying the substances and that reward system, constantly hating it with the substance actually can change our genes yeah. in a negative way. Right. But we can also change our genes in a positive way. You yes. can, and that's with, with sobriety and with stopping uh, the offending agents uh, so that your body can then 
be like, yeah, huh, okay, so I guess maybe this is my normal now. This not what it was before. It's it's this. So I need to change. We need to start changing all my cells, changing the genetics of the cells now back to what we are now. This is the status quo. So then the body will adjust itself. And that's amazing how our bodies can do that, by the way, how we're made to do that, how smart our cells are. That's tremendously interesting to me how adaptive Mm. our bodies are in that if we consistently feed it these substances, the body's going to adapt to that high level of dopamine and Mm. come to expect it. And conversely, in sobriety and in recovery, if we are engaging in abstinence and healthy behaviors, our body's going to learn to adapt to that as well and learn to expect it. 100%. And the hard part is that whole sobriety process because like I said, you have the memories, the good times and the feelings and the highs and, and that, that is, so that whole in-between process of sobriety um, is really the hard part because what I see often happening is people go back to, to, to a certain environment Mm. that they're surrounded by and perhaps others are, let's say drinking at a party and you're like right by them and you're not holding a drink and people look at you like you're weird. So then you take a drink and it's like, Oh my gosh, now you have recollection of these memories again. And you're kind of hurting yourself, hurting your sobriety. So the main thing is avoid trying to avoid those types of situations because at least initially that's very hard to conquer. You need really strong willpower during those moments, at least initially when you're trying to start your recovery process, because you don't want to get switched back on. We in the rooms of recovery have two really instructive pearls of wisdom when it comes to that particular danger and risk. And the first one is be careful of people, places, and things. Be careful of people that you used to use and drink with, places you used to use and drink at, and things that remind you of your substance or addiction. Okay, So be careful of people, places, and things. If you hang around in a barbershop long enough, you're liable to get a haircut. (laughs) If you hang around in a bar long enough, you're liable to get drunk. And if you hang around... Uh, a place where people are doing drugs, you're likely to start doing it. So that's one. The other pearl of wisdom is there's only one thing you need to change and that's everything. (laughs) And so in that, but that speaks to the, we really need to make a radical shift in the people that we're spending our time with. We want to, if we're trying to be sober and we're trying to be in recovery, then it'd be a really good idea to, spend our time with people that are also trying to be sober and also try to be in recovery. Absolutely. Because then we're not going to trigger ourselves in a way that puts us at risk. Yep. That's so true. I agree. And that early sobriety is so important because we're really dealing with two phenomena. 
Number one, our brains are all of a sudden lacking something that it's become to depend on. Right. And that's difficult. That's withdrawal. Mm. But also, we are missing probably our biggest uh, social circle and friends and those things as well. So the combination of a the absence of the substance plus the process to connect socially to a new group of people doesn't happen instantly. No, that's hard. That's very hard to do. Which is why I think recovery programs and support groups are so critical, especially in the beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, just imagine that situation, you know, you're, let's say, an alcoholic, and you're trying to be sober, but you're going to a party, and everyone around you is holding a glass of wine or beer or whatever, you know, and you're like the only one there without it, and then people comment on it, come on, drink, drink, yeah, that's hard, you know, that's hard to say no to, and then let's say you have to hold in your hand just to pretend, just holding it in your hand, you know, absolutely, <laughs> it's going to be a trigger for, for someone who's, who was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic. Absolutely. But we can successfully get ourselves into situations and we we can successfully be in situations where alcohol is present as a recovering alcoholic. If we do the work yeah. and for me when I engage in those situations or I know alcohol is going to be a part of it, I have a plan. Mm. I always have a reason if I need to leave because mm -hmm. I'm feeling uncomfortable or I'm feeling triggered. And I always have my own way out. Mm. And I don't then depend on somebody else to get me out of there if I'm feeling uncomfortable right that yeah. way and i always have a beverage in my hand uh, always yeah because then somebody's not going to come up to me and say hey here's a drink do you it's not going to happen i already have one yeah. so those things in combination have really been a winning combination for me when it comes to those kinds of events. And I, you know, I, in my professional life, in the before times, pre-COVID, mm -hmm. when I had to attend fundraisers and those kinds of things, that became the go-to. And no, nothing better for me than a um, club soda and a lime. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it works perfectly. So having a plan is really critical in those kinds of situations so that I can get through it without uh, uh, without risking my sobriety, which is the most important thing. If I don't have my sobriety, then the re that I chase the rest of it out of my life. So you're right. And what you're saying is really thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, as, if you're an addict, you want to really think ahead to the situations that are that are going to present themselves in front of you. Let's say, you know, you're going to a fundraiser or wherever, you know, play it out. How is it going to work out? What do you want to do? So you're having a plan, like what you just said, I think is super brilliant. Uh, and I know everyone's different and everyone's going to have their own methods, but that's right. definitely have your plan. That That's, um, that's great. 
talk about now some of the long-term effects that long-term substance abuse or addictive behaviors can have on our bodies and our brains. We wonder this. We, I think, get concerned, especially in the beginning, if we've permanently damaged our bodies and brains due to the substances that we've used and abused. Well, I mean, it really depends on exactly what the vice is. Mm. Uh, Let's say, you know, smoking, it's, it's, I think, the most common addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Obviously, we know the side effects of of smoking because lung cancer, uh, vascular disease, all your blood vessels are going to be really hurt uh, because it really affects those small uh, blood vessels. It affects the, the lining of those blood vessels. Numerous studies have shown that. So you're at risk of heart disease and other problems. Uh, in terms of alcohol, uh, uh, there are a variety of disorders that can happen. Certainly we know liver disease is a, is a big problem uh, with uh, alcohol abuse and, and with liver disease comes other problems. Uh, in terms of the, the, the brain, uh, for someone on chronic alcohol and, and abusing it, there's been evidence showing hypometabolism or decreased metabolism, which means slowing of the brain. Um, and that's with chronic long-term use. Uh, and of course the brain is plastic and it can reverse itself uh, with appropriate behavior and, and, and sobriety. But certainly if you keep on taking it long-term, the, the brain's just going to slow down. Uh, and so it's commonly seen. Um, so those are the main uh, things that we see in terms of long-term consequences. Um, what about long-term stimulant use? You talked about nicotine in yeah. uh, the the effects of smoking on our on our bodies, on our lungs, and on our vascular system. What does stimulant use, long-term stimulant use, also have potential long-term side effects? It does, and this is really a good good point because it connects to the neurosurgical patients that I treat. I can't tell you how many thousands of patients I've seen. Even recently, like two weeks ago, I saw a couple who uh, were cocaine addicts or, or methamphetamine addicts, and uh, and they were just found down in their home or on the street somewhere. They were brought in, and they've had hemorrhages in their brain. Hmm. And so the, and these hemorrhages are in classic locations of the basal ganglia, which is deep in the center of the brain. And that's because those the, are little tiny blood vessels that supply the basal ganglia. And those blood vessels are the ones that, that um, are injured in patients that uh, abuse these stimulants. Mm. So you can get hemorrhages in the brain. Unfortunately, some may die. I've saved many, many thousands, but some may, may die uh, because the hemorrhages are too big or they've, they've just spread into the spaces of the brain and, and you can't really fix that. So, so stimulant use can cause high blood pressure is what I'm trying to say over mm-hmm. time. And when that happens in the brain, those little, little tiny blood vessels, they can't take that pressure. They're sure. too small. Sure. So they're just, just going to pop, you know, just sure. like a balloon, it's going to pop. Sure. And uh, so it's super important to be aware of that with stimulant use. Any of this can be improved with abstinence, sobriety, and a commitment to healthier living. Yes? 100%. And the term for that is plasticity. Hmm. So the brain is like plastic. You can mold it. You can 
change it depending on what you're doing to your, to your body and brain. It's interesting, Dr. Kalusian, because my own recovery journey has been one of eliminating one addiction at a time and one after the other. And I started with drugs and alcohol, and then I quit nicotine. Mm. And then very recently, sugar and junk food. Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting in each one of those, the body misses it right away a lot. But then it gets used to or adapts to this new normal. Right. That happened with alcohol and drugs in the beginning. And then after a few weeks, the physical stuff was gone. Hmm. The emotional and some of that stuff takes longer. The romancing of it sometimes takes longer. But the physical addiction within a few weeks completely got saved with nicotine. Nicotine was the hardest to quit, and it wasn't even close from a physical perspective. The physical withdrawals of nicotine were immense. Hmm. And then same with junk food and sugar, right? The body misses it right away, but then adapts and realizes it didn't really need it. And each one of these, I've had that moment where my brain and my body finally reconciled with each other. Charlie, you didn't really need that. You thought Mm. you needed it. And it felt good to do it. But you didn't really need that. And that's the turning point for me when an addiction is kicked. And I think that has a lot to do with the, how my body's adapting to this new normal. And, and, and at some point there's this realization that I never needed it in the first place and I don't need it anymore. Right. Yeah, that is, that is brilliant. And, uh, I, I hope your listeners uh, you know, hear that and uh, and practice that. I think that's just so valuable. And the main thing I would say is just try and avoid starting anything like that. You know, the you know once you, <clears throat> once you get started, and it may just be for fun and games at the beginning. But some people just have that genetic tendency that's Indeed. hard to beat, even with the sip, you know, Indeed. or even with one injection of something. Indeed, and there's a little bit of a difference between drugs and alcohol. It's easy to say I'm not going to do heroin. <laughs> Right. It's a lot harder to say I'm not going to drink ever. Right. Because it's a socially acceptable deal. Right. And ultimately, so we've I feel like there's two different categories of that type of it's a lot in my mind easier to say, well, I'm you know not going to do meth. Yeah. But it's a lot harder to say I'm not going to have, you know, potato chips. Right. Right. And so. The the reality is, is that if we do end up becoming addicted to something that is deemed socially acceptable, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sex, for example, or, you know, things that are not even substances, gambling, which is legal. Shopping. Uh, exactly. Right. Uh, Amazon.com. Yeah. <laughs> then, My wife probably ordering from there right now. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know what? Um, Amazon's 
quarterly earnings show Dr. Kalustian she is not alone. Yeah. That is for sure. So we can get addicted to just about anything. And I think the reality is recognizing it, come to terms with it, getting honest about the the true nature of our addiction, whatever it might be to, whether that be to heroin or Amazon. Using iPhones. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to have a reckoning. We have to get honest with ourselves and then begin the process of recovery and understanding some of these things. You can't quit. You know, you can't quit food. Right. (laughs) So we have to try to understand. We have to figure out what is okay in the framework of that particular uh, what used to be an addiction right and define boundaries around it right do i never eat junk food anymore no um but i but i've come to a place where i know myself well enough to know when i'm eating it because i want to feel better Mm. right versus when i'm eating it because I'm, you know, it's a treat or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a special thing. So that same thing with, you know, whatever category we're talking about. So let's get back to a little bit around our brain's ability to be able to essentially adapt and self heal. Does that become complete at some point? I mean, is there a point where our brain's are like they were before we ever started uh, using a substance or engaging in an addiction? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the brain is very plastic, as I said, especially in younger people, you know, 40 40 or 50 below. Uh, As you get above that, it's harder for the brain to really change as fast. It still changes, but it's hard to change as fast back Mm -hmm. to where you were before. But certainly... Mm -hmm. Um, certainly, uh, if you go into sobriety quick enough, uh, as opposed to, let's say 40 years of alcohol addiction, you're not going to have atrophy of your brain, which is the brain losing volume. You're not going to have, you know, injury to the, you know, uh, memory areas of the brain, which can happen with alcohol. Um, so I think, you know, I think chronic addiction over many, many years can pose a more permanent problem. But, um, but at the end of the day, um, you have to find ways of decreasing use, stopping, finding alternative ways to make you feel happy and content. And the brain and other parts of your body will adapt to that and will will change and will heal the body will heal over time. Sounds like there's a turning point of sorts in that 40 years of age range where it becomes more difficult for the brain to heal itself and to begin to function closer to how it did prior to substance or addict substance use right substance use or addiction but it still can after that time period it's still of course can improve and can get better 
over that period of time, what do you feel like is the greatest piece of advice you might give somebody that is contemplating recovery Mm -hmm. or new in recovery? That's the first question. And then the second question would be, what's the greatest piece of good news that you would say to somebody who is contemplating recovery or, or new in recovery? I'll answer the second one first. So the good news would be that um, you're, you're going to have more control over your actions and over your life, as opposed to an external influence having control over you. Because with an addiction, no matter where you go, you're really not going to be piloting that plane. Isn't that funny, though, because I think a lot of the reason I engaged in substance use was to for control. Yeah, was for control. Of my own emotions, primarily, I wanted to either medicate negative emotions Mm. or experience positive ones. But the result was, especially over a long period of time, was that I had decreasing control over my emotions and my behavior as a result of the addiction. And when we, yeah, right? That's an interesting dynamic. You're, you're, let's say you're an airplane, your plane was hijacked. You know, someone came on board, it was a friendly person. And during that flight, it was hijacked. And you don't have control over that person anymore. You don't have control over yourself. And so I guess what that comes to is that, was that initial friendly person or that drink or that drug or whatever, was that really something you needed? Was that really a friendly person? You know, was it really, or was it just a masquerade of someone who's pretending to be good for you and your friend, but yet in the end is going to hurt you? It's a perfect example. It was an artificial response. It was an artificial experience. Yeah. I was feeling artificially good because of the substance and then that substance hijacked my brain and my body and took me to a place I didn't want to go. Yeah, because you had no control, you know. And where that substance took me is not where I thought it was going to take me. Right? Amazing. And people don't think that far ahead, you know, absolutely when they start not. something. No, yeah. absolutely not. No, I, absolutely not. This thing was like the answer when I first started drinking. It was the answer. For sure. Yeah. Because nothing else that I had experienced prior to that allowed me to feel that good. And why wouldn't you want to keep doing that? Because there wasn't any immediate consequence that, you know, so and and that's the that's part of the allure of these substances that often we're not going to get 
major consequences right away. We're just going to feel really good. And then I become dependent on it before I even realize I'm dependent on it. And then the consequences come. But at that point, I'm already dependent on it. Yeah. And I think I need this thing. And I'm terrified of what life will be like. I'm terrified Mm. of living life without it. Wow. Because I think I'm going to come unglued. Because I've tried it. Because I had periods of sobriety abstinence because of some consequence and that scared me enough to stop for a while. And it was hell. It was complete hell. I, I was restless. I was irritable. I was discontent. I didn't like life without this substance. Right? But now you do. But now I do. So you learn something now that potentially you should you could have known back then. You 100%. just didn't know it. A hundred percent. And the difference was abstinence versus sobriety and recovery. Right? That was the true difference to really embrace a lifestyle that became that was rewarding and fulfilling with other people that were also pursuing this rewarding and fulfilling lifestyle that didn't include drugs, alcohol, or addictive behaviors. Mm. And that was the key to be able to work a program of recovery for me, the 12 steps. Mm-hmm in order with a sponsor allowed me to live in a different way that became much more meaningful and rewarding than I ever thought possible. Mm -hmm. And thereby not wanting to go back to that old life, which promised in the beginning to be fulfilling and rewarding, but ended up being exactly the opposite. Now in sobriety, I'm able to live a rewarding and fulfilling life because I'm living according to different principles. I've been able to get some spirituality in my life. I've been able to rekindle old pastimes and hobbies that I let go long ago. Yeah. I have meaningful relationships in my life with my kids and my significant other and yeah. friends and family. Right. And so it's a very rich life and it's a very rewarding life and it's not a perfect life, but it is a good life. And no one's life is perfect. Indeed. Indeed. And one of the pieces of advice I'd give is uh, have that plan. You know, have a plan because you're going to have situations that are going to test you. And that's going to happen a lot. And maybe numerous times a day. You need to have a plan in place on how you're going to act and behave. You're going to know something's going to happen, expect it to happen, have a plan to deal with that. And I think that's really important not to allow it to sneak up on you. Right. No, in the beginning, it's going to be hard. You're going to get triggered. You're going to have cravings. What are you going to do? If you're in a program of recovery, then maybe you reach out to somebody that you know that's also in your program of recovery. Maybe it's a sponsor. Maybe it's a friend in recovery. 
Mm-hmm. If it, you're not in a program of uh, recovery, 12 step or otherwise, then maybe you reach out to a trusted friend or you go do something that you enjoy that's physically active, that takes your mind off of it. Maybe you engage in an activity that's rewarding mm-hmm. and that allows you to experience some joy and some relief without having to engage in the behavior that or the substance that uh, you're trying to stop right precisely and outside of the reward system and we talked about the part of the brain that's responsible for the reward system but we talked about the prefrontal cortex right Mm -hmm. right Is there any other parts of our brain that are affected by substance use or by addiction? Uh, We talked about the frontal lobe, uh, the hippocampus, which controls our memory. Um, And And my uh, memory is terrible these uh, days, Dr. Kalustian. Is that because I just always had a bad memory or is that because um, uh, I've uh, uh, done something very wrong to that part of my brain. Uh, I don't know, probably a little bit of both, but mm-hmm. but no one has perfect memory. But uh, but certainly uh, most drugs, especially alcohol, can hurt the memory cells in the brain. Um, uh, so certainly, also the connections are made with memory, uh, like we talked about earlier, in terms of when we're doing a certain particular um, vice and and the the. the memory of the moments you were doing that are hard to erase uh, because of the numerous connections that are made between that particular episode and a certain event. This has been tremendously informative because I think it really helps us to understand that number one, being genetically predisposed is a big part of this addiction puzzle, Mm -hmm. as is how our brains respond and adapt to persistent substance abuse and use, as well as engaging in these addictive behaviors, which also provides a dopamine response. Right. As well then as the long-term effects, addictive behaviors and substances can have on our brains. But I think really the headline here is that once we are abstinent, once we choose to become abstinent and enter sobriety and recovery from whatever addiction we may be battling, that our bodies and brains have a miraculous ability to recover. 100%. I, I agree completely. And that's what we're after when we are beginning our sobriety journey is true recovery, right? Not just after abstinence. We're after recovery. And that is absolutely possible for each and every one of us. Yes. And that 
in fact, is the headline here, right? Absolutely. Dr. Paul Kalustian, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. This was fascinating. It was loads of fun. Thank you. If you want to reach out to Dr. Paul Kalustian, I will have his contact information in the show notes. So check that right now. I will also have links to the many books that he's written. So you can check those out as well. Again, Dr. Kalustian, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.